Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins. And prominent educational thought leader, Adriana Prado. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education. Those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community, as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in a new world environment. These are their stories. Tracy Breeze is a disruptive educator. Love that concept. She puts a question mark on the way we currently do school and she's got a relentless passion to investigate new ways of doing what we do so that it's going to help our young folk to thrive in their world. We can't wait to have a conversation with her. Let's go. Well, it's great to be with you again, Phil. Uh, I hope you're having a wonderful day there in, in uh, the beautiful Hipster Villa Fitzroy. Oh, look, it's been, it's been lovely. I, I, I saw a, a lonely piece of avocado toast wandering past the other, you know, just this morning. I managed to catch it and eat it before anybody else did. And I, I'm feeling good as a result. And, and is that check shirt vintage from one of the stores down there in Gertrude Street or, or, or Smith Street, mate? Uh, mate, it's, it's, this this comes from German Street back in the 1990s. So this is this is the original item. No, no hand-me-downs here. Anyway, it's great to see you again. And Tracy, welcome to the Game Changers. Thank you very much. Very happy to be here. We're going to launch directly straight into our very first question, and that question is: Tell us a little bit about your story and how you got to where you are today. Uh, so I came into education in, as a bright little button in. 1994, starting out um, as a targeted graduate to Shelby High School, which is in Mount Druitt, and then was uh, quickly moved to a permanent position at St. Clair High um, in Western Sydney. From there, I headed into being a head teacher and was head teacher at Riverston. I went from there to head teacher of English at uh, Concord High School. And then we decided to make the move to God's country and became Novocastrians moving to Newcastle. Um, I started my deputy position at Maitland Grossman High, which was previously Maitland Girls and um, a school at that point that, you know, was still lamenting the fact that they'd let boys in. So that was an interesting uh, place to be. I then moved to Belmont High as deputy, and then I got into some really interesting, innovative work with um, Viv White, who heads up Big Picture Australia. Mm -hmm. And I worked with um, Peter Morgan, who was my principal at the time, and we developed a plan through the education department to set up a greenfield site at Cooks Hill which is in Newcastle, and we started the first greenfield site in New South Wales of Big Picture. Tracy, I'm just, I'm, just, yep. I'm, I'm just wondering, for the sake of listeners who are not well acquainted with the great no. state of New South Wales, where we're both from, yep. um, can, can you tell us a little bit about some of these communities that we, we oh, sure. work? Sure, sure. Starting in Western Sydney is a, a, an area where there's a lot of um, socioeconomic disadvantage. And uh, so in the Mount Druid area and the St. Clair High area, um, certainly an area where there is a lot of cyclic welfare and changing the shape of that um, has been, you know, very, a very interesting journey for educators all the way along. I, I guess it, 
in the Melbourne sense, it's like, is it Broadmeadows? We'll say Broadmeadows. Yep. So, you know, I have um, relatives in Melbourne, so I think it's sort of similar to that sort of an area. Cooks Hill is right in the heart of the city. So when we started Cooks Hill Campus, that's sort of right in the heart of the city. And that's a really fantastic opportunity for students because one of the big things about um, the big picture design is two days a week out on internship where they're in the workplace working with adults. Now I'm at Curry Curry High as the principal and I'm in my fifth year of a principalship. We have about 85% of our students in the lowest two quartiles of socioeconomic disadvantage. Um, it's also an area where there's not a lot of public transport and um, that really makes us quite a unique area because the, the, the fact that the kids can't get a lot of places can be a real disadvantage. Um, so a lot of the time we, we have to bring things to them. So a lot of my work is around scoping what's out there and, and bringing it into the school. And um, the school is, is really working towards being a community resource. So um, that's certainly um, one of the things that I'm really passionate about and have been for most of my career. It's really clear to um, Phil and I that we often see school leaders as individuals that require, are required to ask the difficult questions, to support kind of each stage of the journey of a school, and particularly difficult questions that disrupt the established kind of binary thinking and acting that goes on in our profession. What does being a disruptive educator mean to you? Look, it's a really interesting question, and it's, a, it's become, you know, I mean, I've, I've said I'm, I've been disruptive for a long time, and I suppose what does disruption really mean? A disruption, when you look at it economically, is something that changes the shape of the way that we work and live. And I think in terms of the way that I act and work with my staff, and when I say I put a question mark on the end of everything, I literally do. You can't come into my office and say that's because we've always done it that way, because that just will not fly with me. Um, I really think that this is a, you know, in our current situation, this is a watershed moment of disruption. And um, I went into my executive meeting on Wednesday and I had this smile on my face and apparently I have this particular smile and they went, oh my God, here she goes, just strap yourself in because, you know, we're in for a ride. When I talk about disruption, I mean absolutely pulling apart the way that we learn and the way that we ask children to learn. I truly believe that it should be a learning journey that is between the teacher and the student. And I'm a real believer in every question we should ask in a classroom that centres around learning, the teacher shouldn't know the answer either. So we talk about trying to be Google proof. And that's one of the big, one of the big disruptive things that, um, that we work from as our basis at, at Curry. So I want to explore this a little bit further because we're going to get we're going to get to the Curry Curry High School and better understanding exactly what goes on in that school. But I'm interested now about our current time. So we're we're in a, in a situation that is unprecedented, and all of us in education have witnessed change happen at a pace and a scale that, in my time of education in 26 years, I've never seen. It's definitely shaking things up a little bit. There are those who are are pining, desperately pining to return to what is comfortable and common and safe. Then there are those who, a large portion of, of educators who have been navigating this space in a survival mode, but they're doing what they're doing and they're pretty much doing schooling in the online platform and they're delivering uh, learning in the best way they possibly can. And then there, of course, is a band of individuals who are seeing this as an enormous opportunity. I'm getting a sense that you might be one of those. 
And so my question to you is this, what is it that we should stop? What is it that we should start? What is it that we should strengthen? And what is it that we should sustain going forward? So we call that a traffic light opportunity where red is what we stop, green is what we go with, and orange is what we start to have a look at and identify as mm, maybe, maybe not, you know, let's move forward in this. Um, we've started to talk in the way of business in the new normal, which I think mm. is a really nice way of saying that this is a real watershed moment. And of course, yes, you're right. I am out there with my pom-poms and I am going, this is amazing and fantastic. And I think this has done for a lot of um, educational places, what people have been trying to do for years and years. And, with the ground shifting underneath people, they have had to change. And to be honest, what my staff are finding, and I've got a, a, an amazing staff, you can't do this without amazing people to work with. And I have built an amazing group of people around me and with me and who come with me on everything now. And they do literally jump off the cliff with me because when we go into these changes, I, I'm sure you can imagine five weeks into the first one that we did, I had people who literally wanted to stab me and they were like, this is never going to work. Why are you making us do this? Is and it with a parachute or with a bungee rope? Uh, we, were, we were on the bungee rope. There was okay. no parachute because, you know, in, in, in the space of disruption, we often have no framework to work within. And we often don't have something where we can say, we've worked this way and now we're going to recalibrate that and work this way. And without having a framework that, you know, teachers love a framework, teachers love something to sit within because for so long teachers have been the ruler of that room. They are the sage on the stage and they are the keeper of all knowledge. You know, we no longer need to know when World War II is and maintain that information. We can look that up on Google in five minutes. What we can't do is say what was the impact of World War II and that takes the teacher. And that's where that paradigm shift of learning has to happen. So, so when we talk about that idea of really shifting and moving from this particular watershed moment, we've got to take teachers with us and we've got to say, what have you learned from this about yourself, about your learners, and about the way that we do schooling? And we've, um, we've been surveying the whole way along, and we've actually put together a little film, um, which is quite cute, because we've surveyed all parents, all kids, all teachers, and it's quite the, the information that we get back. You know, one of the greatest things about schooling is there is so much mythology oh, that's the way that it should be done and that's the way that learning happens. No, it's not anymore. And mm -hmm. I think we've, we've really shot a lot of this stuff out of the water and, you know, we're delivering in two-hour lots and our staff are getting all of this time to collaborate and they're going, what would happen if we actually got to work like this all the time, Tracy? I'm going, well, it says we can't. There is nothing in the ACE manual. There is nothing. ACE is um, Nessa up here with you know, yeah. our board. Yeah. Um, there is nothing in the ACARA syllabus that says those hours must be face-to-face. -face. Nothing. It just says they, they're mandatory and they must be delivered. How we choose to do that is actually up to us. Otherwise, distance education would not exist. So what a moment. Let's grab it. Let's, let's go. Sounds amazing, Tracy. I'm interested in, in hearing you talk about what you're doing. Do you think there's a moral imperative for us to be disruptive in education? I think there's a moral imperative for us to continue to build amazing citizens of the future. And I don't believe the traditional system does that. I think 
we're, we're hamstrung by Sandstone Universities who continue to want an ATAR. Um, and I look in my own family and in, in my own situation and I see successful people who do not go down that trajectory. So why does education only manage 10% of mm. what we're doing? So then can you share with our listeners a little bit about what you're doing at the school to act on that moral imperative to do education for what it's supposed to do and that's actually prepare our kids to thrive in their world rather than jump through the antiquated hoops of uh, an exam system that should be dead by now? So um, there are no exams in my school in year seven and eight, none at all. So we we barred them in 2016 and we said there are other ways to assess learning and we're going to look at how we use the um, general capabilities, which no one bothers to look at often in the front of every syllabus known to man. Um, and you say to people, you know, there's the first nine pages of the syllabus and they go, what? There's nine pages at the front that aren't dot points about, you know, chemistry and whatever. Yeah, there are. And they're amazing and you should read them. Um, so we, we have partnered up with um, some amazing people from Sydney University and their book is called Transforming Schools. And it's Miranda Jeffries and Michael Anderson. And what they've done is they've taken the four C's of communication, critical thinking, creativity and communication. And they've actually turned them into a number of rubrics using the general capabilities. And so one of the things that we say now is, is this assessment for learning or is this assessment of learning? Mm -hmm. And how are we fundamentally looking at the skills that we want our students to leave with? And if we're not looking at those skills in that assessment, then we, we need to redesign our assessment. So our whole assessment um, has had a complete overhaul. We've used a lot of Dylan Willem's work in the formative space. And then we, we look at some summative assessment through the year to use those um, performance descriptors that are put out by state. So everything, everything you're doing there, Tracy, sounds like that whole world of an education for character and competency that, you know, that's... Our research does a lot in that space as well, too. I'm interested in why you think research is important to bring into the school space. It's the only way to dispel myths. But we have to create that research now. You know, like if we're going to be working in these new ways, um, one of my goals this year is to look at what is engagement. And engagement is not attendance. Engagement and attendance is not, I sit in a room for 90% of the time, be compliant, don't put my hand up, but don't actually learn anything for that 90% of time. Like, what's that? What an old way of thinking. Who works like that anymore? Nobody, you wouldn't have a job. What, what has happened in schools without this kind of research and without the teacher as researcher is that schools have become places where kids go to watch teachers work. Because you can sit in a classroom and literally do nothing. I did this. I, um, I decided to be year eight for a day. What an amazing experience that was. I'd rather eat cardboard. Oh, my God. I sat, I sat for six and a quarter hours in a chair and I was a passive passenger in every classroom I went into. I didn't tell anyone I was doing it. I was the new principal. I just thought, you know what, I'm just going to do this to see what does a day in year eight actually look like from woe to go. Same class. So I sat with them for the whole time. Oh, my God, what an amazing experience. And then I took that. I, I actually had things like, did you know that your kids in that class had less choice than being in jail? <laughs> you know, in terms of the choice of the work 
the choice mm -hmm. of place of the work, the choice of when to do that work, the choice of when to talk, the choice of when to participate, the choice of what does that work actually look like and how do I want to show you my learning in that space. And it, it completely, as I said, has, has completely transformed the way that we run year seven and eight and our year nine NAPLAN data last year, which I've put to the very bottom of what we do, but it's a byproduct of, of what we have done. We were actually above state average for growth in every single area. Yeah, it's really interesting um, sitting here listening to you, Tracy, because what you're sharing is so transformational. Uh, I remember there was a time where I went to the staff at my previous school and I presented to them a bit of a table that demonstrated that in semester one, uh, a year seven student completed 13 subjects and a total of 46 assessment tasks. I pointed out to them that we are asking a non-fully formed human to undertake a lot of busy learning because we think traditionally dogma says that's the way we do it and just simply do it to them instead of with them. And I also highlighted that I don't even believe a fourth or fifth year student at university starting to become a heart surgeon would be expected to complete 45 assessment tasks in the space of 16 weeks. And that we've been consumed by this race to the bottom, you know, and being consumed by measuring all the things that don't matter. And then, of course, in schools, lots of conversations are often around time. You know, this subject deserves more time because we value it more or whatever. And uh, for fortunately, we were able to break through that and eventually dismiss time and give everything equal weight and value in the eyes of the students and really pare back the volume of work that they were expected to do. So I want to keep exploring this line of thinking that Phil started with you about measuring stuff, because I, I agree with you, you know, it's time that we start measuring the amount of time they sit in seats and start measuring other things. And one of the, one of the things that we discovered about your school is that you have developed a, a really comprehensive assessment program. Mm -hmm. You talked a little bit there about the junior school, but can you now talk a little bit about the senior school and what that assessment program really looks like? So I guess one of, the, one of the things that has been amazing in our journey, and it's funny that you say that you did that um, assessment of how many tasks there were, I did the same thing, and there were 75 assessment tasks that kids had to do in Year 7. And I said, for what? We, 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 we've moved to senior school where they only have to do three tasks for each subject, mm -hmm. and we're asking 12-year-olds to basically kill themselves in this space. Um, no wonder they're disengaged by the time they get to year seven now, because that disengagement factor, when you look at the research, has moved from year nine back to year seven. Yeah. So, so we, we were really conscious of, of starting in that year seven space. One of the game changers for us has been this idea of peer critique. Mm -hmm. And it, it has totally shifted the way that assessment happens in our school. So we don't assess in year seven and eight on A to E. We have going for green and going for gold. So nothing gets submitted until it's a C or above. So kids might have 15 edits before something goes in. But what we've taken away is, you know, that kid, that career D, mm -hmm. D, 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 D. You can't do that anymore because of the, the structural stuff that we've put into play in that junior school space. What we've really shifted into the senior school is the co-creation of mm -hmm. the work and the tasks with the teacher and the students. So the teacher walks in and goes, right, here's the outcomes we have to meet. 
this is what I have to do. This is what we have to learn. Then they invite the students to say, okay, from this learning, how would you like to learn this? And how would you then like to show me that learning? So if it has to be a speaking task because, you know, we have to do 25% of a speaking task, the kids are going, I don't want to do a speech. We want to do a Socratic seminar. So we had the situation where we had a, the legal studies year 12 class who did a Socratic seminar for 45 minutes. There was not one second of teacher intervention in that 45 minutes. It was completely student run and student delivered. And we actually videoed it because it was, it was just outstanding. So I want to explore this a little bit further then. So one of the mantras at the school is being active learners. And that's what you're really demonstrating in these examples that you're sharing with us. And you talk a lot about building this culture around the curiosity in all of us. How do you achieve that with your team? How do you get teachers as a collective efficacy, a, a body to move to a collective efficacy, I should say, towards tapping into the inherent curiosity that young people and all of us have to build a culture of active learners? Really interesting we have our own learning question as an executive mm -hmm. so our learning question this year is how do we become a more collaborative team at curry curry high school with focus so one of the things we found was we weren't able to focus when we got into meetings you know we'd sort of go all over the place and and we weren't focusing in on what were the key things that we were there to do so what we've managed to do is completely shift the way that we look at our meeting times we don't meet just for meeting sakes. Mm -hmm. we, we absolutely set the agenda. And if there's nothing on the agenda, then we don't meet. Mm -hmm. And we also do these things where we go around the room and everyone has a voice so that we're really honing in on and shifting ourselves into mm -hmm. that active learner space. Mm -hmm. And every single executive meeting has at least 45 minutes of professional learning for us. So it's not just about doing the administrivia of school. So much of that can now go into an email. I don't have staff meetings. We don't have staff meetings. Staff meetings are, one, boring. Two, where you talk to people that only need two people to be spoken to and you're telling 70 people. Mm -hmm. um, do not actually at all work to encourage learning. It's a one-way conversation in staff meetings. So we just got rid of them completely. And what we did was we shifted faculty time to professional learning time. So now in our, in our faculty time, teachers are doing things like peer marking and corporate marking of tasks, reviewing tasks, looking at programs. We're actually putting the work that you would have done individually in an autonomous space when I first started teaching mm -hmm. now into a collaborative workspace. So we've really made that question drive then all the way down through the school. Tracy, this is just... A you know, we're recording on a Friday afternoon. I'm just so excited listening to all of this. Makes me want to go back and I, I, I started teaching a few years before you did and it makes me want to go back and be a, a young history teacher all over again. What advice have you got for listeners who are colleagues in leadership positions around the world about how you bring the staff with you? Because this is awesome. This is game-changing stuff. This is school the way it should be for so many people. And yet a lot of people would be frightened by this. A lot of people would be scared. A lot of people would be intimidated. A lot of people would be simply intransigent and hostile in the face of this. While another group, of course, would be super excited by it. And so how do you bring people with you? 
two things I, I guess I can say to that. Um, a really wonderful principal up, up this way, who's now retired, came to my school because she was like really keen to see what the hell I was doing. And um, she's someone that I really admire and rate. And she said she walked into the school and she was there all day and she stayed with me all day and she looked around and saw the things that were going on. And as she was leaving, she turned around to me and she said, Tracy, I thought you were really stupid or really smart. And I'm happy to say it's the latter. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, that's a good thing. Thank you. So what, so, so what are the smarts about doing this? Yeah. So um, I guess my advice to people is back yourself. Go from the heart. If you know it's right in your heart, you know it's right for kids. If you put students at the centre of everything that you do, and if you can work to put Maslow's before Bloom's, and if you can understand that no child in conflict can learn, then you are in the right place to implement change. But you then also have to apply that to your staff. You have to make them trust you. You have to show them the research. You have to walk the talk and talk the walk. You've got to do it both ways. And, and you've got to lead by example. I, I would say... Um, one of the things about being a principal who is what I would call a visible principal, you know, they talk about visible learning, mm -hmm. all of that sort of stuff. I think you know you're a visible principal when what you want to happen in classrooms is actually happening without you there. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the greatest things, one of the greatest things you can do in your footprint of leadership is to carve out the path and then take them with you. And we've had pitfalls, but you know what? The other thing is I give my staff a complete voice. I'm happy to cop the, you know, the rhetoric of this isn't working and this is why it's not working. But I always say we come with solutions because we're not going backwards. And that's so hard. It's, it's hard sometimes. Like I reckon um, after we started Hubs, which is our spaces of year seven, 60 kids in a space, three teachers, I knocked walls out everywhere, um, totally combined curriculum. They do six subjects in one. When we started that journey, I reckon people were ready to walk and they really, really wanted me to pull back and stop the journey and start it again 12 months down the track. And I went, no, we are doing this. What else do you need from me to make this successful? And then I interviewed every single staff member individually and we came up with a plan. I think that trust that I was able to build with staff, now when I walk in with that said smile that I started with, they go, okay, we trust that she's read stuff. We know that she's someone who looks into stuff, but we also know that she has this really creative mind that works over time at 3 a.m. and she's come up with something else she wants us to do. <laughs> So, so can, I, can I get really practical around this then? Because quite often people will respond to a change initiative, which is research-driven, it's from the heart, it's passionate, and you get the, oh, it's such a lovely idea, but we need more time. And yet the reality is there is no more time. There's no more time, there's no more money. We've got a budget, we've got the people we've got, we've got the time we've got. What's your response to we need more time? Be comfortable in the uncomfortable because that's where the good learning happens. So if you, if, you, if you are truly a lifelong learner, which you're supposed to be as a teacher, should be why you came into teaching, you will be comfortable in the uncomfortable and you will be happy to fly the plane with me as we build it. <laughs> um, well, let, let, let's, push that, let's push that a bit further then, Tracy. I, I want to yep. now 
take that move the conversation towards Curicuri's high school's response during the pandemic, where you developed home at uh, KKHS model and, and you reframed the conventional school day. Yep. So this is this notion of being comfortable in the uncomfortable, right? And, and this model was a blended approach of explicit instruction, student self-directed learning, a strong emphasis on personal wellness, and of course, the power of community check-ins. Can you share with our listeners the challenge of this shift or what were the challenges of that shift in this space of unparalleled uncomfortableness and then the successes that people are now starting to see as that green light moment? Really interesting, I think, because, you know, we, we have um, been an online school um, in terms of really strong BYOD. You know, I told you about our community. We've got about a 75% take up of BYRD because our parents really do value um, that idea of technology and education. We moved over to Canvas as our learning management system um, in 2017. We, we started it in 2016, but really hit it off in, in 2017. And my mantra was the junior students in this school will not know school without Canvas. And uh, was in my mind at that time, we would have a pandemic and this would be really important. No, <laughs> um, but uh, it, it, had, it had already reshaped the way that we delivered, but not everybody was delivering in that way. And what we found in, in the first couple of weeks of moving to remote learning was that people were doing things quite differently. And one of the pieces of feedback we got was, can we streamline the way that the Canvas courses are delivered? So that's where that idea came up that we would halve the content and double the time because we were giving them too much work. So we were listening to the kids. We were checking in with them weekly. We were saying what's working, what's not. Limiting the videos to six minutes each with the explicit instruction in them. So you went from, from uh, quantity to quality. We did. We did. We did. And... And, yeah, half the content, double the time. Tracy, under that, again, I'm just teasing things out here. How do you help people to overcome the tyranny of the syllabus dot point when you halve the content and double the time? Because really well-intentioned teachers who are doing a bang-up job in the existing model, you know, I can remember a point when we were looking at a Year 10 history syllabus in New South Wales and there were 100 hours and 146 dot points. And you're rushing, 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 rushing. Education that's rushed is poor education. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that we really moved from was meeting all of those dot points. And what we said was, what we have to do, and this is we take this very, very seriously in the way that we design our units, the NESA documentation says, and the ACARA documentation says, you must offer all of the dot points. That doesn't mean you teach them all. So while we can offer, we might offer every single one of those dot points to the top class. Well, if you're true to differentiation and you're truly differentiating for your kids, you are not teaching every dot point. But across the year group, you will offer every single one of those dot points. So we have, we've totally transformed that too because I've gone, this is stupid. We all know how stupid it is. We all know that the curriculum is well cluttered and, you know, I don't understand why we had a system where we wrote a new syllabus and had people from the 1970s write it. Like, no offence, but that was not the syllabus that we needed in, in 2020, 20 years into a whole new way of learning, you know, but don't get me started on that. 
So and the reality is also, Tracy, that that I know in our context in Victoria, where so many schools are still wedded to the to the year level framework, is that the actual Victorian curriculum is not written in year levels, with the exception of English and mathematics. All the curriculum is actually written across a band. And the, and the way it's structured in Victoria is the band is across two years. So theoretically, a young person could enter into that space and demonstrate proficiency of the achievement standard over a two-year period. They don't have to do it within you know, one semester or a year. So again, even that shifting of the mindset that you're not restrained to the time that we've been hardwired to believe is the only way that we deliver this, that we actually are freeing up teachers' imaginations to be able to deliver the desired outcomes, which are the real takeaways and transfer, as opposed to this weddedness to just simple content. Yeah, I've got, I've got kids who come into you, like from year six, into year seven, who are operating at early stage one level, like year one. Why are we introducing a stage four curriculum to those kids? They can't access it. Yeah. So what I did, I, I actually employed a primary school teacher, life-changing in a high school. Wow. Yeah. Actually teaching children, not content. So we interrupted you before when right. you were in your train of thought about your, the, the home model. So I just want yep. to allow you to... Back to that. So... What what we designed then was this idea of modulating the work. So what we did was we said, okay, you basically have six lessons over the fortnight. We're going to modulate that into six activities that we do across the Canvas course. And what we've done is we've boxed them into a Canvas canister, which is just a course. And what happens now is students have to complete that box, which is two weeks worth of work, and they have an exit ticket or a mastery path or some kind of exit strategy at the end of that two-week block and then it opens the next canister for them so it's right. like gamifying um, mm -hmm. that delivery but yeah. students can then do it at their own pace path time and place because we've got kids who are the only kids earning money in their families so they yeah. can't access that work in the normal school hours so what we're seeing is and this is my thing about attendance and engagement we're seeing those kids access that work at eight o'clock at night and they're doing it yeah so you know that's that's been a real shift for my staff because if you've got an instructional video this is the other thing that's really changed up in that space you have an instructional video that's five minutes we've got the data that suggests that some of our lesser able kids are watching that video five times mm-hmm so they're not hijacking the lesson, asking the same question five times, because you know they all do because they don't listen to each other when they're talking. So yeah. you get that same question five times repeated. The students are pressing pause and play on their teacher and watching it more than once in order to go back and digest that information in smaller chunks before they move on to the next activity. So that, that has been amazing for our staff to see. And, and what, a, what, a, what a model of engagement that is. Tracy. I want to take you forward to that either sad or glorious day in your future where you'll retire, because um, it happens to all of us. And one of the challenges of schools who've had a period of intense creativity and progress and so on and so on and so on is that it all gets shut down next time. And, you know, every, every, every school leader, every principal needs the freedom to be able to reinterpret um, the delivery of an education according to the constituency of the school and its community and the mission as it changes from time to time. But nowhere does it actually say, okay, we're gonna jump back to 1950. 
Now, what steps do you think school leaders can take to make sure that, that schools keep moving forward rather than go backwards? I think there's a couple of things in that, actually. And I think um, because I have been a school leader for a long time, I feel like I'm getting really old. I've been teaching for 26 years or whatever. There's a couple of really important turning points that I think really need to be examined when you go into a leadership position. What is your legacy? What is it that you want to hang around after you are gone? Because you're right, I'll, you know, I'll eventually go. I don't plan to go anytime soon. I've got staff who send their kids to our school and they're saying you're not going anywhere. So um, that's a nice. That's uh, good. That's flag. good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but I think that there are a couple of things about your leadership. I was one of those teachers that when I left, those programs left with me because I was that teacher and I was able to do it on my own, but it wasn't replicated. So I think your capacity to replicate across your whole staff and to really encourage every staff member to be a gun is really, really important. And then you've got things, we call it consistency of practice, consistency of processes and consistency of policies. So what we've done is we've used those three areas to really say to staff, this is how we work at Curry Curry High. So when you come in and you're inducted into my school, you have two days of complete indoctrination. This is how we teach writing at this school. This is how we teach reading at this school. This is how we teach numeracy. You will use Canvas or please don't let the door hit you on the way out. <laughs> Tracy, I was going to ask you a question to finish off about the future of education, but I kind of feel that's a little superfluous in this conversation because I really believe you have explained that already to us in the time that, that we've sat here with you. So my final question to you is this, why is this work important to you? At my very core is a belief that every child deserves an education and that is why I am in public education and I truly am a believer that if the door doesn't open then you go through the window. My biggest issue with education is that it is so middle class. It does not take in our Indigenous kids. It does not take in our poverty kids. I'm, um, I'm from, you know, I'm not from a middle class family. My dad is from, a, you know, a housing commission background with seven kids in a very small house. I saw my dad unable to write. He only went to school till he was 14. And I really see the value in connecting kids. And my comment to kids all the time is, even if you give up on yourself, I am not giving up on you. That is fundamentally why I believe that I'm a, a compassionate and empathetic teacher and I see myself as a teacher, but I became a principal because I believed that I could really make a difference by motivating and getting people to change the way they think about the world that they're sending these kids into. To all our listeners who are having the privilege of hearing from Tracy right now, I think the future of education just came into very sharp focus. And the future of education is one that is inherently human. And in the absence of celebrating our unique humanness, why do schools exist? We know that the factory model of yesteryear is outdated. It should be parked. It should be finished. And schools aren't places simply around supporting the economic uh, growth of a nation. 
but it's got to be around this important social contract that you're talking about, Tracy. You know, Tracy, one of the things I learned very early on in my previous life in advertising and marketing, some might say that's a soulless uh, undertaking, was one of the most important things was about the what. And that was that perceived value is what make clients or customers want to engage with you. But actual value is what makes your clients or customers want to stay with you. Mm. For the last 45 minutes, what we have heard, Phil and I, is someone that operates from a deep value proposition that's personal, that's powerful, and that's purposeful. Tracy, it's been a true delight uh, listening to everything that you have shared with us today. The community of Kurikuri High School are blessed to have someone with your not only expertise, but kindness. And I'm really excited to be able to tell your story and their story because everyone matters. And I just wanted to say thank you very much for your time today. Phil. Oh, I've got nothing, nothing, nothing that can be said after that. It's, it's, it's awesome, Tracy. Keep going. Keep fighting the good fight. And, um, and thanks for the opportunity of sharing your story with educators around the world. Thank you very much for having me. The Game Changers podcast is produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and supported by Circle, the Centre for Innovation, Research, Creativity and Leadership in Education. Go to www.circle.education. The podcast is hosted on SoundCloud. It's distributed through Spotify, Google Play and Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe and tell your friends you like what you're hearing.